Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In her book, Ninoch Rise, Natalie Babbitt tells the story of a young man named Egan who wants nothing more than to leave his rural home and visit relatives in the nearby town of Instep. He desperately yearns to attend the annual fair there to see the sights and sounds so different from his own regular dreary life. When he arrives in Instep, he stays with family members who prove to be less than welcoming, and he begins to hear stories of a monster that lives at the top of a mountain just outside of town. The monster regularly breaks into fits of rage with the sounds of the anger filling the town. The townspeople provide regular offerings of food to appease the monster's anger. Egan is intrigued by these stories and curious about the monster. One day, at the instigation of teasing from his cousin, Egan decides to climb the mountain to prove his courage and to discover the truth behind the monster. As he is struggling his way up the mountain, a storm blows up and Egan is forced to take refuge in a cave near the top of the mountain. It's there that he discovers that the monster is nothing more than the wind blowing over the rim of a large opening to a cavern inside the cave. When the storm is over and Egan is back among the townspeople, he tries to tell them the truth that there is no monster, to liberate them from the fear that has kept them bound all those years. But the townspeople will have none of it. For the monster was frightful and fine, and it belonged to them. The people's greatest fear isn't that there really is a monster, but rather that there is no such thing as the monster. For if there is no such thing as the monster, then the fear and the superstition that has arisen among them has been pointless and silly. The idea of facing such a reality is too much for them, and so they ignore Egan. Fear plays a crucial role in today's gospel. The tragic events of Good Friday are over. Jesus has been crucified. He is dead and has been buried. The disciples have fled to avoid being associated with this enemy of the state, this threat to the peace. Only Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy and powerful man who had apparently been moved by the ministry of Jesus, dared to go and claim Jesus' body and bury it. Mark tells us that the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, watched from a distance. They're all terrified. What if they're associated with this criminal whom they've called Lord? Peter, James, John, Andrew, none of them are to be found. And so Jesus is buried. But something, something must have gotten the better of them over the course of that sorrowful Saturday. 
For the women rise early on Sunday and head to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial, to finish the job so hastily and quietly done by Joseph on Friday. What must have changed for them? They came to the tomb before the sun rises, so they're clearly still terrified of someone seeing them, but instead of leaving Jesus' body to the elements, they now come to anoint his body for its final repose to ensure its preservation. Had their broken hearts triumphed over their fears? As they make their way to the tomb, they they wonder how they're going to get inside, for they know that that large stone has been rolled in front of the tomb to seal it. As the tomb comes into sight, though, they're astonished, for the stone has been rolled aside and the tomb stands open. They catch their breath as they make their way into the tomb to see what has happened. And inside the tomb, they discover that young man dressed in a white robe and sitting on a shelf across from where Jesus' body had been left. Mark tells us they were alarmed, for they had no idea who this man was or what he wanted from them. He speaks quickly to calm their fears. Don't be afraid. I know you're here looking for Jesus, for the one who was crucified, but he isn't here. He has been raised. Look over there where they laid his body. It's gone. He isn't here. Now go and tell Peter and the other disciples that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you'll see him there just as he told you you would. The women must have looked at each other in utter shock and disbelief. How? What? It didn't make any sense. Jesus was dead. He couldn't be alive. Could he? Before they can answer that question, even within themselves, they turn and run away from the tomb as fast as their legs can carry them. And Mark goes on to tell us that they didn't say anything to anyone about what they had seen or heard because they were utterly terrified. What would you have done? Would you have believed that young man? Would you have stayed to ask questions? The women flee in terror, not of the Roman authorities as the other followers of Jesus on the night of his arrest, but instead they run away in fear of what it might mean if what that young man at the tomb had said was true. What if the absolute worst the political and religious leaders of the day could do to Jesus wasn't enough to silence him? What if it wasn't enough to bring an end to his work? What if Jesus was alive again among them? The very thought shook them to their core. James Huffman Jr. in a sermon several years ago wrote, simply said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ equips us to face our two biggest fears, the fear of dying and the fear of living. If he's right, and I think he is, then the resurrection of Jesus takes away our fear of dying and leaves us now with a fear of living. What must we do with the time we're given. Our greatest fear isn't that the resurrection isn't true. 
rather that it is true. For if it's true, it changes everything. We no longer need to be bound by our fear of death. We are set free to live without concern for ourselves. We are set free to love and serve with reckless abandon for the sake of healing the world. Some years ago, mystic Marion Williamson wrote, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that others don't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. What is holding you back this morning? What would it mean if death really wasn't the end? What would you do if you didn't have to worry about the number of years or months or days or hours or seconds in your life? The good news of Easter is that we don't have to fear death. Jesus has forever broken its grip on us with the enduring promise that the God who is faithful in life is faithful in death and life beyond death. We may not know what is on the other side of the grave, but we can trust that the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ will always be with us. If we give our lives to continuing work of Jesus, to caring for those who are considered last and least and lost in this world, to working to amplify the voices of those long silenced and ignored, to striving for a world that is more just and sustainable and peaceful and loving, then we can be assured that our lives will have eternal consequences for good. Their impact will continue to shatter the powers of evil and death, witnessing once more to the triumphant power of God's love to transform the world. May we all embrace the uncertainty of the dawn, this new day, as we realize the truth of it all, that death really doesn't have the final say. And may that truth, however terrifying, free us to become the living, risen body of Christ in this world. Amen.